1: You're listening to the Bloomberg Opinion Podcast. Catch us Saturdays at 1 and 7 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Welcome to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Amy Morris. This week, we look at the booming weight loss drug market you've heard of some drugs that are designed to treat diabetes but they have a desirable side effect significant weight loss now there are new drugs on the market with more on the way we'll talk with bloomberg's lisa jarvis later we'll look at the upcoming presidential election and what it means if it becomes another ballot box battle between president biden and former president trump Bloomberg's Clive Crook explains why that scenario may prove to be bad for American democracy. And then a deeper dive into the little blue check mark. Bloomberg's Allison Schrager explains that Twitter's blue check mark, which meant that the user is authentic or verified, now might no longer be the coveted status it once was. We begin with the Fed, rate hikes, and banking turmoil. This past week, Fed chair Jay Powell said they're watching inflation, which has cooled somewhat, but not quite enough, not yet.
1: Inflation has moderated somewhat since the middle of last year. Nonetheless, inflation pressures continue to run high, and the process of getting inflation back down to 2% has a long way to go.
2: And he touched on concerns over the banking turmoil, which regained some momentum after the takeover of First Republic Bank.
1: I think that the resolution and sale of uh, of First Republic is an important step toward drawing a line under that period of, of severe stress.
2: Bloomberg Opinion columnist Paul Davies covers banking and finance and joins me now. Uh, Paul, let's talk first about Chair Powell's opening remarks, if you saw them as less hawkish than we heard back in March.
3: Yeah, that's right. I think that... Um You know, things have uh, changed, obviously, uh, compared to where we were in March. I mean, I think, you know, inflation numbers are still high and employment is still uh, very high. So the the kind of the main things that they're targeting aren't necessarily moving in the way that they would want them to. But we have had this this banking turmoil uh, since then, with several banks collapsing, First Republic Bank, Silicon Valley Bank and so on. And that brings concerns that there will be a significant contraction in in lending and kind of credit provision to the economy. And that's kind of, I guess, one of the main ways in which sort of monetary policy ultimately feeds through into economic activity and employment levels, inflation and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, he was expected to be a bit less hawkish, certainly. I mean, some people might have been thinking he was going to be even less hawkish than Mm. uh than he actually was in the end.
2: Really? And overall you say markets really want some clarity about what may be to come. But Powell gave those conditional answers. He's very nuanced. Or more nuanced rather.
3: Yeah, well it's a very we're at a very tricky point, I guess, in terms of judging what's gonna happen next. Uh, as I say, these bank collapses have brought significant worries that we'll see a major credit crunch. And I kind of I wrote a piece back in March after uh, credit Suisse collapsed in Europe, and after the, the first bank collapses in the U.S. Where I was saying essentially, you know, when you when you put a bunch of interest rate rises through, nothing seems to happen for a long time, and then suddenly they all can hit at once. It's like it's like an elastic band, kind of like pinging back towards you. Hmm. Um, and that's because, and and what that means is you get a sudden kind of tightening of financial conditions, a sudden tightening of the amount of credit that's available. And that's going to have a big effect on, or the concern is, that's going to have a big effect on demand in the economy.
2: There was some conventional wisdom that regional banking turmoil would raise the possibility that the Fed might pivot toward lower rates. Uh, Where do you sense that stands at this point?
3: Well, I think what they're doing is, I mean, he signaled a sort of a pause yesterday. He didn't signal a pause in quite a... as a certain and as definite a way as markets might have wanted, mm. but it's the right thing to do at this point. I think is to is to try and is to give yourself some space. Is the Fed to give itself some space to wait and see what happens with with the banks from now on? What happens with stability in the sector? I mean, he said several times that the the sector is you know strong and stable and what have you and sound. Uh, and bank executives that have been reporting results. They have been saying much the same thing. Jamie Dimon, uh, 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 when they took over, when JP Morgan, uh, which he runs, took over First Republic Bank, was very clear in saying he thought this was the end of the banking turmoil. But we are still seeing some smaller banks suffer, you know, terribly in the market. And, uh, And there may well be more, you know, failures or more kind of takeovers of some kind that need to happen. So... It's, it's a kind of, it's a moment where, like I say, inflation is still high, employment is still very high, the economy is strong enough, but all of this banking turmoil in the background is definitely due to higher rates and it's just sort of trying to, you know, it's, it's impossible to say exactly how this is all going to unfold and the only thing to do really for a central bank is to just kind of try and stand back for a bit and just sort of watch the numbers and sort of see what happens.
2: Can I ask you a layman's question with this? Because it seems like throughout this entire process with the banking turmoil the regional banking turmoil, you know, we we saw what happened with Silicon Valley Bank, and we heard, oh, this is an isolated incident, this is within itself. And then we saw something similar with Signature Bank, and they said, oh, no, 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 that's because of something completely different, isolated incident, and then, of course, First Republic Bank, and we're not even talking about Credit Suisse, but we're seeing all these little isolated incidents happening and throughout let's just say throughout the US definitely and not exactly at the same time but it seems domino like how how long before we finally start to connect these dots and say you know what maybe there's some there there
3: yeah well that's a very good question I mean I think there is definitely a common thread to uh, to these you know banking issues and it's all to do with you know higher rates, depositors looking for more attractive returns elsewhere in money market funds and even sort of treasury bonds and this sort of thing. Um, And the kinds of assets that a lot of these banks have invested in, which aren't necessarily the same assets, but many of them behave the same way in the sense that they lose value when interest rates rise. So, you know, there has been a theme to these collapses, and you know the current banks that are under pressure most pressure uh Pacwest uh, for example mm-hmm. doesn't seem to have exactly the same sort of issues at all uh, certainly on the asset side but again if it does get into trouble and if we I mean, if we relook at the, all the balance sheet and everything else after it you know is in tr- after it fails if it does fail then we may well kind of see how it fits into the same sort of narrative after all markets generally have a way of looking for the next weakest link in the chain whenever you get a series of problems and kind of going after that weak link and seeing if it falls over. And I guess we won't know that this crisis is over until the last weak link that the market goes after doesn't break.
2: And we are talking to Bloomberg Opinion columnist Paul Davies about the Fed rate hikes and banking turmoil. I want to build on something that you just said about being the weak link. Does that then indicate we may be bound to see more failures in the regional banking system? What sort of risks are we looking at? And what are you looking for?
3: So I guess we're looking for you know more deposit flight or continued deposit flight from smaller banks, to larger banks i guess you know you'd also be looking for any of the smaller banks that have a very large share of uninsured deposits mm-hmm. in the same way that some of these others uh, have done and then the other thing obviously that we will be watching and that you'll continue to watch is is you know falling share prices and you know the extent to which some of these smaller banks have to compete for the funding that they get through deposits and and other means you know they have to pay more money for that and that has an impact on profitability and this can become you know for all of these banks and especially for smaller banks that are less diversified it can become a sort of a you know a really difficult spiral to get out of because you know falling profitability leads to a collapsing share price which worries you know depositors because they see the market saying that their bank is weak so maybe they start pulling their deposits out which means even higher fund funding costs which means even greater squeeze on profits which means even more of a problem for the share price and it's a kind of it's a circle that keeps going round and round and and can keep getting worse and that that might be what starts happening to some of some of these other smaller banks next that don't necessarily have exactly the same problems that you know Silicon Valley Bank and First Republic Bank had but can get into these sort of downward spirals because of that interaction of funding costs, profitability and share price falls.
2: OK, well, then let's put it all together and tie it up with a little bow. Any final thoughts on the economy, whether we're likely to see a slowdown or something more substantial in the coming months?
3: Well, I guess it's like it's a very tensed, uh, tense and quite finely poised moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, in many ways, we just have to kind of like, you know, watch and see what happens Um there's lots of talk about, you know, stepping in and insuring many more deposits or insuring all deposits or this sort of thing. I personally think that would be a mistake for reasons that are probably too lengthy to go into right now. Uh, and anyway, and if the, if we were going to do something like that, it would probably be take too long to 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 put it into place to kind of stop, you know, uh, this mini banking crisis that we're currently having. Anyway, so. So, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a very tense and finely poised time, and uh, it's really uncertain as to exactly how it's going to play out.
2: Paul, thank you so much for taking the time with us. It is always a pleasure. Thank you. Bloomberg Opinion columnist Paul Davies. Just ahead, we take a look at one sector of the pharmaceutical industry that's got the market's attention, weight loss drugs. Bloomberg's Lisa Jarvis joins us in just a few minutes. You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion.
1: You're listening to the Bloomberg Opinion Podcast. Catch us Saturdays at 1 and 7 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts.
2: You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Amy Morris. And by now you've heard of these weight loss drugs. They weren't really intended to be weight loss drugs, dominating the obesity market. The drug commonly known as Ozempic, designed to treat diabetes, has become so popular for people trying to lose weight, it's getting harder for diabetics to get their hands on the drug. And now we're learning that Eli Lilly has another drug in the pipeline called Monjaro. That helps people with diabetes lose a significant amount of weight. Let's get more on this. Bloomberg Opinion columnist Lisa Jarvis covers biotech, healthcare, and the pharmaceutical industry. She joins us now to sort of walk us through all of this. Lisa, always a pleasure. I want to thank you for joining us today. Um, this drug, not Ozempic, but Monjaro, is currently marketed for diabetes. Is that right? Or is this specifically for weight loss?
4: That's right, and thank you for having me, Amy. Um, it is currently marketed for diabetes. It was approved last summer, um, but we know that this class of drugs, which is called GLP-1s, um, they mimic hormones in our body and um, essentially make reduce your appetite. They have, result in this feeling of satiety, and so people lose a lot of weight on them, and so they have been developing it in tandem for diabetes and for um, weight loss. Uh, There was a lot of excitement starting last year in April. Uh, Eli Lilly came out with a phase three trial in people with obesity showing that the drug could help them lose over 20% of their body weight, which was by far the highest we've seen on any weight loss drug kind of in history and, you know, is on par with bariatric surgery. And so that's one of the reasons that there's so much excitement around this class of drugs.
2: So would they be willing to test it not only for diabetes, because as you say, it was already approved for that, but now they have to go through an entire new testing process? to make sure it's safe for weight loss specifically?
4: That's right. So they did diabetes first. I think that's like a well-known FDA kind of trajectory. And in the diabetes trial, you know, a side effect is weight loss. Um, And they've been running these very large trials. I mean, thousands of people in weight loss um, because the market with drugs that actually work has the potential to be huge. Um, I think some of the forecasts are pretty, (laughs) pretty, um, mind boggling $54 billion by 2030 is what one analyst forecast the weight loss drug market could be for this class. Um, so they are expected to see approval by the end of this year for this drug in um, weight loss. There's already one other drug on the market, so we hear a lot about Ozempic, that's yeah. actually a diabetes drug. That same drug at a higher dose, the same ingredient in that drug is sold as Wegovi, um, and that has already been kind of um, going like gangbusters. And so Eli Lilly's drug will be formally approved likely and weight loss by the end of this year and go up against Wegovy.
2: Are there any concerns for people who may be taking these drugs? I mean, they're tested, but they're, they're also kind of untested, you know, out in the right. wild. I,
4: I think, I mean, well, my main concern is that a lot of people are taking them off label. And by that, I mean that Right now, when they've been in shortage, there's this potential for you to go to a telehealth um, provider and get them prescribed to you. You may or may not actually fit into the kind of guidelines that the FDA has approved them under. Mm. Um, and you know who knows how much actual guidance you're getting for how to take them. They have side effects, like some people can't tolerate them. Um, and really you're supposed to ramp up on them very slowly. But you know, if you stop taking them, the weight will come back. And I think one of the concerns is like, you know, what do we know about long-term use of this? There's been a lot of media attention on this class of drugs and what we do and do not know and would really like to know if we're going to have people taking them for the long term.
2: Okay, so then who are these drugs for?
4: So right now, they're for people with a BMI above a certain level or a BMI above a certain level who have another risk factor. Let's say they have high cholesterol or at risk of having diabetes or have diabetes. Um, But I think that you know, we also know from TikTok and social media that celebrities are taking them as a quick fix. That's the rumor, at least. I don't. (laughs) But celebrities are supposedly taking them as a quick fix to lose weight for, you know, an event that they're going to. And I think the regular, um, you know, public is interested in them for this type of purpose. Um, That is making it hard for people with diabetes to get them, which is also a problem because, I think the companies just didn't anticipate the swell of immediate demand, and they just, in in the beginning, couldn't make enough of them.
2: Lisa, in your column on the Bloomberg Terminal, you talk a bit about the sales goals for these drugs. What will it take to achieve the goals that they have set forth?
4: I think really two things. You know, one is convincing insurers to cover them. The drugs are not cheap right now. They cost over $10,000 a year if you were to pay for them out of pocket. Um, And uh, amazingly, some people are willing to pay that, but, you know, it's not sustainable for most people. Um, And so some private insurers will cover them. It can go take a battle. I know that some telehealth companies have emerged almost with the intent of being the person that goes to battle with your insurance company to try to get them covered for you. Right now, Medicare is not covering them at all, um, which there's a lot of you know, controversy over whether they should be covered. Um, on the one hand, if it does improve health outcomes, that would save our healthcare system in the long run. On the other, there have been some estimates about the incredible burden these drugs could have on our healthcare system if Medicare did cover them. State Medicaid, it's been patchwork. Um, And so uh, there's a bill that the companies have been trying to put forward um, around getting these covered. But I think the other big thing is really proving that when you lose weight it improves your long-term health people have that people have fewer heart attacks and strokes and live longer and that's the companies are running very big trials right now to try to show that we won't know the answer to those questions for another you know 1 to 3 years though
2: it seems like this has the potential and set me straight if i'm wrong lisa this would have the potential for completely redesigning and forgive the term but disrupting the weight loss market
4: Oh, for sure. And we saw that recently when we saw Weight Watchers acquire a company sequence that, um, you know, is a telehealth company that is prescribing these drugs. It was an admission for the first time that diet is problem, diet alone is not enough for many people and that these companies, these dinosaurs like Weight Watchers are going to die off if they don't adapt. Um, And so, you know, I I think it is changing the paradigm, good or bad. You know, there's lots of different opinions on whether that's, um, you know, we all should be taking medicines or not um, for weight loss. But, um, you know, it is, it is a sea change because we've never seen drugs, the, the kind of closest, I think, are the drugs that could, um, you know, people could lose 5% of body weight, which is much different. You know, that's a much smaller amount. Um, Those still could be an amount that could affect your health.
2: And we're going to continue to watch it because we want to see how the people who are using it fare over the next five to 10 years, the long gain, the long term use of this product, you know, how, how are how, are the, how does their body handle it?
4: That's right. I mean, and I I think, you know, another issue is that if you go off the drugs, you're likely to lose weight. There's a lot of things that are in development coming up behind them. And so I think there are questions. Can you take them less frequently? You know, what are ways that we can um, change not just, you know, what we already have, but change the paradigm going forward so that it feels um, more accessible and uh, more possible for people to be on these for the long term. So that's that's. there's a lot more to come. This is a huge area of investment for pharma. Um, everyone's seen what's happening with these two first drugs and trying to <laughs> put their own stake in the ground.
2: We're going to keep watching it with you, Lisa. Thank you so much for following this. And we want to keep in touch with you as there are developments in this part of the industry. Thanks so much.
4: Thank you for having me.
2: Lisa Jarvis is a Bloomberg Opinion columnist who covers biotech, healthcare, and the pharmaceutical industry. Now, stay with us. Coming up on Bloomberg Opinion, we'll take a closer look at how the 2024 race for the White House is shaking out and what might signal some very real issues with American democracy. And don't forget, we're available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. This is Bloomberg Opinion.
1: You're listening to the Bloomberg Opinion Podcast. Catch us Saturdays at 1 and 7 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts.
2: This is Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Amy Morris. It might feel like the 2024 presidential election is right around the corner. But, you know, a lot can happen between then and now. President Biden has continued to address concerns about his age.
3: Everybody running for re-election in this time has been in the same position. There's nothing new about that. you are making it sound like Biden's really underwater.
2: While Republican frontrunner and former president Donald Trump is looking to sink his competitors.
1: Sir, I'd love to have your support, sir. I'd love to have your support. I'm down at about three. I'd love to have your support. All right,
5: let's think about it. And it was like a rocket ship after I gave it. Otherwise, right now, you'd have a lawyer someplace looking for business.
2: We could easily see a repeat of the 2020 election, but if that is the case... What does that say about our democracy? And we pose that question now to Bloomberg Opinion columnist Clive Crook, who is also a member of the editorial board covering economics, finance and politics. And he joins us now, Clive, it is a pleasure. And I loved reading your column about this. What does it mean if we do
5: see a repeat of the 2020 race for the White House? Well, you know, I think, the you know, the main thing it, it means and the main thing that's been missing in a lot of the commentary is just what a stunning, turn of events this would be. Now, admittedly, you know, a lot can happen between now and the election. But let's just suppose it is a Trump-Biden rematch every, you know, I think most of the country thinks that's bizarre. That's, you know, are these are these men really the best that each party can offer as our next president? Foreigners, I think, are just completely bewildered by the fact uh, that we're looking at this at this choice. Uh, but I'm struck by the fact, you know, that, as it were, political specialists, analysts, and observers are just taking this completely in stride as though, you know, well, of course, yeah, Trump v. Biden. What could be more natural? You know, our reaction should be, this is ridiculous. Uh, these, are, these two terrible candidates, they're both unpopular with most Americans. What on earth has gone wrong with our system? That's my main point.
2: Well, you just described a lot of the elections... Uh, leading up to 2024. And what I mean by that is, you know, we saw this sort of legacy election with the uh, um, Bill Clinton and then Hillary Clinton. We saw, of course, the Bush legacy elections with uh, George Bush Sr. and then George Bush, George W. Bush. Um, and and it, for a while, it looked like a Bush versus Clinton uh, a dynasty yeah, in, in all the elections. Yeah. Is, is that yeah. where all of this started? I don't know if that's.
5: I mean, it's a good point. I mean, that was a strange uh, phenomenon, Um, and especially, you know, the I think the Hillary's uh, candidacy uh, was weird because that was almost like her main, you know, her main claim. Uh, It's my turn, you know. Uh, It it was a kind of dynastic, almost like a dynastic succession thing, and voters really didn't weren't that interested in that. They didn't. They didn't want that. But now I think we have a different phenomenon because I think if you look back to, you know, the Bill Clinton days the bu- and the Bushes, you, you know, the, uh, we lived, although, you know, there were intense political fights, intense political controversies, you don't misunderstand me, but by modern standards, mm-hmm. um, you know, th- there was at least the possibility of a more consensual uh, style of politics. And I think that's actually what Bill Clinton stood for. I mean, he's an extremely skillful politician, and he was able to reach out to a lot of moderates as well as Dems. And actually, I think Obama had that same kind of talent, you know, that um, certainly in 08 when he was running, you know, uh, the pitch he made was very much along those lines. Uh, you know, he was, a, he was a progressive Democrat, is a progressive Democrat, but he crafted a message that had great appeal to the center of the country, stressing unity, coming together, fixing problems. And the country liked the sound of that and wanted it. Where, that's just gone. Now we have Biden who ran as a centrist but has turned into not a centrist in my view. He's, he's gone along with this kind of left, left-leaning tilt in the Democratic Party and he's running as a sort of anti-MAGA Republican his his posture is mainly about you know sticking it to the enemy it isn't about reaching people in the middle it's about uh, you know energizing democrats to see the danger on the other side which of course activist democrats already do and then Trump of course is the quintessential divisive Candidate. I mean, politics for him is all about identifying an enemy and sticking it to the enemy. And he does, I don't think he even really cares all that much who. So what's happened is that we have a, a, a very, very different, angrier, more oppositional, anti-consensual style of politics. That that I think is is the profound change. And what I find so depressing about this forthcoming contest, if it happens, is that we just seem to be cementing this approach to politics into the country. And I think it's profoundly bad, profoundly dangerous for the country.
2: Clive, you said something that really struck a chord with me. Are we lazy? Are we just not politically motivated or civic-minded anymore? Are we just, I don't know, burned out, tired, sick of it, just lazy, just too preoccupied with whatever else?
5: Well, I must—I uh, do think that's a—that is an excellent uh, point because one of the things i have been trying to argue in some recent columns I've written on American politics is that the blame for this mess we're in lies partly with with people like me, as, as it were, the the disgusted centrist. <laughs> uh, fact, but I mean that that that's the problem. That I mean, an awful lot of Americans, I think, are just disgusted with politics. And I would say they have every reason to be. And their response is sadly, to switch off. And just, you know, say, I don't even want to talk about this stuff, you know, just leave me alone. And the problem, of course, is that that leaves the field to the true believers on each side, you know, the Trump fundamentalists, and the, uh, you know, the progressive fundamentalists, and the, the, the middle of the electorate, uh, you know, where common sense prevails and you know, where people are willing to strike compromises, uh, those those people are sort of left out of the system. But to respond to your point, it is partly their fault. I mean, they've chosen to stand aside. Um, and that's partly why I feel, you know, I really have a longing for a you know, a, a sort of centrist compromising leader who can channel uh this disgust with the extremes and appeal to the center and as it were re-engage the center but when you look around where where are these politicians there are some in the republican party there are some in the democratic party but they aren't speaking up very much are they i mean they're completely sort of subdued and cowed by trump on the one side and the progressive um, activists on the other. Biden's fallen in with those people, in my view. And so, you know, the moderates in Congress are sort of, uh, they aren't stepping forward to represent the middle of the country. That's that's what's missing.
2: So if they're not stepping forward and you are making this point of, I would really like to see someone more centrist, it is possible that you're not in the minority, that you are not alone in this longing what would it take to fix this broken
5: system yes I, I mean i i don't think i'm in a in a minority i mean i think um many americans feel this way um but it's extremely difficult to um you know for them to make an impression on the system and as i say and i i, I agree with the point you were making earlier that you know there there, there is an element of it of it being our fault, you know, the centrists need to be more energetic. I mean, it's not good enough to say, you know, the system is failing. Uh, This candidate is terrible. That candidate is terrible. And then, as it were, you know, have nothing to say about your own role in fixing the problem. I mean, we have to step up and fix the problem. And we aren't willing to do that. But, I mean, I do understand the exhaustion that people feel when they follow politics, I mean, wherever they look, it's this, this dysfunction, this anger, this reluctance to apply common sense solutions to problems that everybody can see need to be addressed. I mean, it is exhausting. What is it? What is an, as it were, an ordinary centrist American to do? I don't know.
2: Bloomberg Opinion columnist Clive Crook, thank you very much for taking the time with us.
5: Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it.
2: And if you're a Twitter user, you already know there's been this issue over the infamous little blue check mark. Never has there been so much uproar from so many people over something that seems if you think about it kind of artificial, but maybe not. Let's talk this over with Bloomberg opinion columnist Allison Schrager. Allison, set me straight. What's going on with the little blue check mark?
6: well, I mean it's it's interesting how. No matter how much we evolve and how much tech we have access to, how we're just still these very tribal people couching for status. Like people don't change. And the blue check mark has just been something to behold because for several years, um, people who had status, which was arbitrarily defined, or in our case, just worked for a media company, got a blue check mark which meant that you were a public figure and it became a status symbol. It also meant your tweets were more visible, more promoted and more visible in people's notifications. And then Elon, you know, rightly, I think he had a point of thinking when he took over Twitter, how can I monetize this business? that's never made any money. And he's like, well, this checkmark's valuable. Maybe I should start charging for it. And then, you know, all hell broke loose. Right. Because... For a while, people were upset that you had this checkmark, but someone could pay to look like they had the same special status you did. And then they took away the checkmarks from the status people. And as I said, I I liken it to like a, a Regency era novel of just... British nobility losing their status and having these or at pay their way in. It, it's just, like as I said, we, we are so, you know, such tribal people obsessed with hierarchies and that never, ever changes, no matter what technology we've got access to.
2: Now, there's something to it because it does give people who might want to quote you or might want to follow you a little more gravitas. It gives them the idea that this isn't just somebody pretending to be someone else. OK, I get that. But then the check mark itself was a commodity before Elon Musk tried to monetize it, did he break it?
6: I think he did. And I mean, this is the larger point of the column. It's not just, you know, me working out my mixed feelings about losing my checkbook. Right. <laughs> it is It is actually, I mean, a bigger story about the tech economy, which really did offer free services for people hoping, well, if we just have the same network effect, say everyone's using it, that's got to be valuable somehow. We'll figure out how it's valuable later. But giving someone something for free and then taking it away sort of, again, sort of raises a lot of our tribal like instincts of, hey, that's unfair. And then it's really hard to move out of that model. Is this going to be the end of Twitter? I don't think so. I mean, maybe. I mean, I don't know. I'll be the last one there. I mean, uh, I I mean, the thing is, it is just I I sort of I I go through my I said my own issues with it, which is it's so bad for me, but I can't quit it. I think everyone keeps trying to quit it and trying different social media platforms. But the thing is, there is something to the network effect, which is everyone is on it. And this is where you get all your information. And this is where a conversation is happening, particularly if you're in media that you feel like you have to be part of. And I'm not sure if Elon can monetize it, but, you know, it, it's got everyone saying it's not the same. But I think it's got several notches to fall before anyone will actually start leaving.
2: What do we do about it? I mean, are we just going to watch and see what happens with the blue check mark? Are we going to watch and see how Twitter develops or doesn't develop? I mean, it does, as you say, speak to the greater tech industry as a whole, particularly with social media.
6: Well, I think the tech industry, as I said, is going to have to change. I think with the rising rates and sort of realizing that there's a, sort of a way of monetizing this through advertising or even data might not pan out the way they want. Mm. I mean, these tech companies can't keep doing this forever. Elon can't, as rich as he is, can't fund it forever. So, I mean, either they, something will have to change and maybe that will mean we'll actually have to pay for this stuff. And I was thinking about it, $8 is really not that much to pay for Twitter considering how much time I spend looking at it. (laughs) Um, I mean, I spend more time on this than anything I subscribe to. But, um, so either, but if you do pay for it, fewer people are on it, so it is less valuable. So I think the tech will change, but I, I, I suspect
2: my mind is already broken from it. So I don't see, see it coming back. Alison Schrager is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and a Bloomberg Opinion columnist. And that does it for this week's Bloomberg Opinion. We're produced by Eric Molo, and you can find all of these columns on the Bloomberg Terminal. We're also available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. Stay with us. Today's top stories and global business headlines are just ahead. I'm Amy Morris. This is Bloomberg.